This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Film Spotting SVU is presented by Movies on Demand on Cable, bringing the latest indie movies into your home at the touch of a button. Starting September 13th, Catch Your Sister's Sister, available on demand weeks before DVD, starring Emily Blunt, Rosemary DeWitt, and Mark Duplass. And starting September 14th, don't miss Arbitrage, starring Richard Gere and Susan Sarandon, available on demand the same day it hits theaters. The latest independent films are ready when you are with Movies on Demand on Cable. The art house is now in your house. From New York City, this is Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit. I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. And coming up on this week's show, Matt and I look at his dog, Kirby, and then we cry and cry because we are going to talk about Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu's Amores Peros. I'm, I'm crying already. <laughs> Later in the show, we'll bring you cue shots, our look at some of the current offerings on various streaming and VOD sites, all centered around a common theme. Inspired by Amoris Peros, we thought we'd discuss some other movies featuring disturbing scenes of animal death, but that seemed a little dark, so we thought, maybe films in which there are traumatic car crashes? Domestic violence? Oh, familial abandonment. But we finally pulled ourselves out of our bleak contemplation of human existence, and we realized, you know what? We could talk about all of them if we do a podcast about hyperlink movies, in which there are separate but interconnecting stories. But first up is Opening Break, a segment we do in conjunction with our sponsor, Movies on Demand on Cable, in which we spotlight one recommended title and give you a rundown of other notable films new on demand on cable. So Matt, what's our pick this week? Our pick this week is a film entitled Beyond the Black Rainbow, which is directed by a young filmmaker named Panos Cosmatos. If that last name sounds familiar... It's because his father, George P. Cosmatos, was a director as well. He directed Rambo First Blood Part Two. He directed Tombstone, several other movies. And this is his son's first feature. It's available on VOD on September 11th. And it's a very conscious attempt to sort of recreate old school midnight movies. I'm not talking about like Plan 9 from Outer Space or The Room here. Think more like El Topo. Think Eraserhead. Think Altered States. A weird, weird movie with lots of strange, surreal, possibly druggy imagery. And the setting of the movie, I think, is very deliberate. The year is 1983. It's sort of at the tail end of like the heyday of that kind of midnight movie, which I think is sort of an intentional homage to that period. And also it's an excellent excuse to have a really like synth-heavy score, this very early 80s synth score and lots of funky disco lighting too it's a it's a film about a deranged doctor who's performing these strange experiments on a mute girl at this medical facility and at first things sort of proceed in kind of an orderly fashion but then there's this very interesting dream sequence in the middle of the movie and and at a certain point basically like the entire logic of the film kind of breaks it, it breaks into pieces it just becomes a strange feverish weird swirl of all kinds of crazy psychedelic stuff. Uh, 
feeling? You look tired today. Have you had uh, any headaches? I don't know who you are or what you are. Allison, were you a fan of this movie? I was a fan. And I think, I don't know if the director actually said this or if someone else described the movie this way, but it did seem to recreate that uh, the logic of when you watch a movie when you're young, like you catch a movie that's probably too old for you mm. on like uh, on late night cable or something. And you remember all these images much more than you you can grasp the story. And actually, I think the film gives a real sense of that, of just these like crazily intense images, like very sensory images, but then a plot that is so dreamlike and kind of very secondary to all of these uh, uh, intense uh, visuals that go on. Yeah, without spoiling it, there is sort of a little cookie at the end of the credits, as I recall, that sort of speaks to exactly what you're describing. This idea of being up really late, later than you should, watching a strange movie that you don't really understand that's maybe beyond your comprehension, but kind of loving it even though you don't understand it. And I think that's the the frame of mind you get in to enjoy Beyond the Black Rainbow. If we, The way we've described it doesn't sound interesting to you. Stay away. But if you're in the moon for something kind of funky, something to watch late at night, this is going to scratch that itch very well. Uh, some other picks this week, Allison, on VOD. All right. Well, uh, going up on VOD on September 11th is The Loved Ones. This is not actually a film I've seen, but was highly recommended by Adam Kempinar from yes. uh, the Film Spotting Mothership. Yes. It's an Australian horror film directed by Sean Byrne about uh, a young woman, let's say, who's very insistent on finding the right date to the dance. Yes. It's a horror movie set around prom night. And I actually have what Adam sent us here. This is from Papa Kempinar himself. He says it's really good and I can see horror fans really embracing it. It just missed my top five of the toronto film festival back in 2009 and probably should have made my list it won the midnight manis award at the festival that year and i've been waiting for three years for a chance to see it again it's creepy and darkly comic without the humor necessarily coming from winking at the audience or paying tribute to other horror movies it has one of the best uses of a frame to provoke a laugh out loud moment i've ever seen curious how that moment will transfer to the small screen i've never seen it either but i have heard a lot of good things about this this movie i have too uh and i'm really sold on just the description alone prom horror is a really you know underused prorer prorer it's pronounced prorer (laughs) it's catchy yes all right and we've got one more recommendation (laughs) yes uh this goes on vod on september 13th and it is dark horse which is the latest film from todd salons who is of course the director of such uplifting work as happiness and welcome to the dollhouse and uh, it's, it's, I think, a real, I don't want to say return to form from him, for him because he I was only made maybe, I think, five or six films. Uh, but it is, I think, it captures a lot of what he has done in his most famous films so well. And it's about a man in his mid-30s who lives at home in New Jersey and is, you know, both kind of a part of and a rebuke of the recent tradition of the lovable man-child stars Selma Blair, Christopher Walken, Mia Farrow. It makes New Jersey look as, you know, purgatorial as watch, it often watch, does. Watch. Nothing against New Jersey. I'm All just right. saying no one quite Tread loves and agonizes over it like Todd Salons. All right, fine. Yes. Really, I think a really very good film and uh, one that if you haven't cared for his last two films is still worth checking out. So, okay. Uh, and Dark Horse. One more I want to throw out there very quickly just because I'm really excited to see it. It's a documentary entitled Knuckleball directed by Ricky Stern and Ann Sundberg. will be available on VOD on September 18th. It is a film about baseball pitchers who throw this very particular, very peculiar pitch called a knuckleball. The film includes R.A. Dickey, who's a pitcher for my baseball team, the New York Mets. He's having a fantastic year this year. I believe the film was shot last year, where he had a a pretty good year as well. It's an interesting pitch when you learn about the history of this pitch, because it's it's not one that requires arm strength. It's sort of an unpredictable, bizarre pitch that moves in crazy ways. And R.A. Dickey has a very interesting personal story. He recently wrote his uh, memoirs, which uh, were really interesting as well. So I'm really looking forward to seeing that on September 18th. It's called knuckleball 
Now, hyperlink movies, uh, this is uh, not, I don't know how widely accepted a term it is, but it's it's the one that has been most useful in terms of describing these films that like, wind together stories from different places. They, they interconnect in some ways, maybe thematically, maybe in terms of the characters actually interacting. But it's got you've got your multiple threads of narratives coming together hopefully with some point to them. Right. You know, I was thinking about this. Uh, you know, we, I, I think there's, there's a tendency to associate this with, in particular, this period, maybe in the like 90s to the like last decade where there were a lot of these films. But it's definitely not a new form. Uh, you know, there's actually a play that was first published in 1900 called La Ronde by Arthur Schnitzler that was a, kind of a proto-hyperlink story in which there are 10 scenes and each has a pair of lovers and the lovers are kind of daisy-chained. So it's a uh, starts off with the whore and the soldier and then it's the soldier and the parlor maid and then the parlor maid and the young gentleman and so on all the way back around. And there have actually been, this is how... Uh, impactful this structure is there have actually been two films released this year based on this over a century old form i saw one of them i saw one of them too which one did you see 30 beats i saw the other one 360 <laughs> how did you feel about 30 beats i wish i had uh not seen any of those 30 beats <laughs> zero beats would have been preferable i felt very similar about 360 actually yes. and 360 was actually directed by that uh, was a big movie fernando moreas who is uh, the of city, city of god, god which is another other hyperlink film. Yes, it is. And uh, you know, this in this case I I felt like I wanted to almost apologize to the original playwright <laughs> who's long dead just because it struck me watching this film which is it links together all of these people not necessarily lovers in the case of 360 but it, it links together people in different stories around the world um, and coming kind of back around to uh, the central couple played by Jude Law and Rachel Weiss. I made me upset because I was like in this case the very idea has been reduced to a screenwriter's quirk. You know, it's a way to show off, in this case, just how kind of you can make a puzzle piece screenplay. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, when we were talking about the subject before we decided on the podcast, I, that that can be the worst part of a hyperlink movie, which is when the fact that you've just fit all these people together is the point. Yes. You know, that there is no larger theme. Mm-hmm. But this is not, I, I think, either of our favorite topics. No. When you think about this topic, like, what are your immediate associations? My immediate associations are, are like, with movies that I don't particularly enjoy. And I think the problem, as you sort of suggested, is that they're more about issues than they are about drama, you know? And they require so much coincidence. As you said, they're about, they're puzzles, right? And they're all about making all these pieces fit together. And, oh, this person knows this person, and they're both related to this person, and this person over here once met this person in a laundromat, and while they were standing in the laundromat, outside there was a car accident, and this car accident changed all of their lives. And as I was thinking about this and thinking of the movies that fit into this world, I don't really like the name Hyperlink Cinema, by the way. That's something else we could talk about mm -hmm. later if we want. But I feel like there's like a test that you could apply to these movies to separate the good ones from the bad ones. And this is the test. Would these stories hold up on their own without each other? If we pulled one story out and made it a short film, would that short film be worth watching on its own? And I feel like if, if it would be, then probably the movie is pretty good. And if it isn't, then the movie is all about the structure and not about the characters. You know, they're, they're not about storytelling per se. They're about point making. And I think that's the problem, you know? They're, they're not stories in service of characters. They're characters in service of points. These grand statements about life that everything is connected or life is like a dog or whatever it might be. <laughs> do you, what do you think? Is this an interesting no, test? I think, it, I think it's a very good point. And I think it is a good test. And I think also to, to kind of uh, answer the puzzle, the puzzle idea, I yes. think that sometimes some of the best... Uh, things that might fall under the umbrella of the hyperlink movie are some of the messiest ones. You know, like I, neither of these films were on streaming, but, you know, Robert Altman's movies, Nashville and Shortcuts are yes. both, you know, hyperlink movies in that idea, even though they came They before. predate the, the name, but they're yeah. definitely in this category. Right. And they don't feel like they have been manufactured to bring you to a certain point, even though Nashville 
does it does kind of arrive at a certain point, but it never feels like everyone is in service of getting you there. Right. It feels very vivid and alive and and deliberately messy. You and know? loose. Yeah, and in that Altman-esque way. Yeah. And I think that those qualities are are some of the best ones. Uh, I don't, but, uh, you know, then again, I, I love Adam McGowan's Exotica as mm. well, which is, isn't loose. I wouldn't call it loose, but has it manages to fit its different elements in in a way that doesn't feel like they click together, but maybe rather that they they complement each other, mm-hmm. you know, given also the way that the stories don't all don't all line up uh, so nicely. So I, I think some messiness is actually a really nice thing when it comes to this type of film. Maybe it's personal preference, but maybe we enjoy messiness in movies in general. And these are with some of the exceptions you've mentioned, these are not movies that value messiness. They value structure and rigidity and interconnectedness and screenwriterly tricks and, and ticks and stuff. There's that, there's that old expression, you know, give a man a fish and you feed him for a day. If you teach him to fish, you feed him for a lifetime. Hyperlink movies to me, they're like giving someone a fish and also telling them how to eat it. You know, <laughs> like it's just like this is how it is. This is what it's like. You know, they're very didactic. There's so little space for interpretation in the bad ones. And the good ones, there there is room. But in the bad ones, man, there are there's so little room to fill in the gaps. You're just telling you're just telling, you know? And that is the other expression about movies, which is show don't tell. And so much about bad hyperlink movies is tell, 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 tell. It's all telling. Telling us, telling us. Racism. Car crashes and racism are bad. <laughs> or I mean, racist think, car crashes are, are bad. They're the worst. <laughs> uh, but they, or even things like New Year's Eve and Valentine's Day, oh. you know, in which you basically you've compressed uh, a thousand cliches into a single movie because every character that you introduce has to have a journey that you know maybe in a in a full length and maybe not better romantic comedy, but would take up the whole film. Right. But in this case, is compressed to like the 10 minutes of the movie that maybe are dedicated to them. Yeah. So you have uh, you have so little room for any kind of, you know, signs of life outside of this path. It's grim. I had worked really hard to forget that New Year's Eve existed, and now it's all flooding back. I think I saw it with you. Oh. <laughs> Robert De Niro's subplot. Oh, man. He's like a <laughs> cancer patient. Oh, man, so bad. I wanted to ask you, I mean... Uh, not that it's come out yet, but Cloud Atlas does seem maybe the mother of all hyperlink movies in Indeed. this sense, right? Do you want to explain for folks who are, haven't quite heard it yet what it is? Sure. It's uh, it's a film based on a kind of sprawling novel by David Mitchell that goes from different eras in the past all the way up to like this post-apocalyptic far future and kind of has maybe kind of has a reoccurring souls. Maybe there's like a reincarnation theme. And the movie is uh, being directed by Tom Tickfer and the Wachowski brothers and, uh, you know, has cast members reoccurring as well for these different themes in like very different roles. Right. Like Tom Hanks plays like six different characters in six different time periods, for example. Right. And so uh, it does seem like this is the be all end all (laughs) hyperlink movie. It could be. And it looks it looks fun. It looks really spectacular. But it also does seem to hint at some of the negative hyperlink cinema traits we've talked about sort of that focus on importance and everything being connected connected. right i mean i have read the novel and it is actually it is about the kind of connectedness of things Mm -hmm. so maybe it's not maybe it's more appropriate in the case of this though i agree i mean when you're leaning on this expectation of like how everyone is joined in some way uh it, it's a pretty tough uh, emotion to kind of uh, get in people to feel like that's a profound moment, you know, and not a contrivance. Well, we've talked a lot of, in, in general terms more than we usually do. And that was somewhat intentional on our part, because when we went to find picks, a lot of our favorite movies in this hyperlink cinema uh, world weren't available on streaming. And we realized we don't like a lot of the movies. So we thought, <laughs> let's talk more about, you know, sort of the, what we don't like and why. And then we will get to the ones that we do like. So let's get on to it. We're only going to do two picks each instead of our usual three picks each. Allison, do you want to start with your first choice? Sure. Uh, my first choice is Gamora, an Italian film directed by Matteo Garone. And it is streaming on Netflix. 
um, 2008 film. And it's all about, in that way that we've said that, uh, that these films are often about something, about racism, you know, about, this is, it's about the Camorra, which is like a mafia style crime syndicate in Naples in this case. And actually, this is one of the cases where I think the idea of using multiple narrative strands to tackle a topic does work, even though you are just by the nature of the film a little less connected to each of these stories because they're broken up. But since the point of this this film is the way in which this crime syndicate just uh, has infiltrated all of these aspects of life and just really to the point where uh, things are being done that are for the worse of the community, but there's just no way to get around it. And, you know, some of the stories include a a man who kind of gets roped into toxic waste dumping in illegal areas that are then affecting people who live nearby. Uh, A man who's like a high-end fashion uh, designer who like makes these beautiful dresses and gets tangled. He tries to kind of get away from the Kimura and it turns out much worse for him. And then a 13-year-old boy who is... Uh, taken into the gang, uh, including the scene where his init- they show his initiation, which is to get shot while wearing a bulletproof vest. Um, and then there are two other teenagers who have these dreams of being gangsters and have watched all these movies and find weapons. And that as well does not work out for them. Uh, but it is it's a relentlessly bleak movie but in a way that's obviously very deliberate uh, and it does I, I think you know having had no idea about this crime syndicate before it is you know kind of stunning and eye-opening mm-hmm. and and very not glamorous in any way in terms of its depictions of crime uh and it has also i i think you know beyond being having a lot of very striking imagery despite how kind of crumbling and dark these neighborhoods are that uh, that the film takes place in it has this one giant like housing complex that serves a really central place in the film and it is, that is like really remarkable looking in terms of just like it's got these terraces and these raised walkways and so many people live there including some of the main characters and it's used really well that's uh, Gamora uh, and that is available streaming on Netflix that is a good movie. The word that you use that sticks out to me to describe it is bleak. And what's interesting, and I'm not sure what we want to attribute this to, is how bleak a lot of these movies, these hyperlink movies are. A lot of them are very dark. And I'm not sure why that is or if what we want to attribute that to. But there is a sense in a lot of these movies that sort of life is hopeless and horrible and these problems are intractable and there's no solution. And what's kind of interesting on top of that is that my first pick, which is maybe my favorite of this type of movie, is one of the least bleak. (laughs) And it is Pulp Fiction from Mm. 1994, directed by Quentin Tarantino, which is available on Amazon, Google Play, and YouTube. Uh, I hadn't seen this movie in a very long time, probably at least five years, maybe closer to ten years. So it was it was kind of – I was looking forward to kind of revisiting it and seeing how it holds up and pretty well overall. I mean I think it, 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 there's certain things that look dated, that sound dated. I think the use of the N-word in the movie, which I remember yeah, – Yeah, it was Quentin a big Tarantino deal. Get, yeah, got, it was a big deal. Quentin Tarantino got a lot of flack for kind of throwing that word around. And I guess as a as a kid, it didn't make as much of an impression on me. Now that I'm older, there, it is in this movie a lot, and needlessly. I mean, you know, when there's a character who's a like racist redneck who abuses people, appropriate when he uses it. But there's a lot of occasions where you just go, it's needless, it's excessive, it's it, you know, it, it it does seem like an affectation that doesn't need to be there. Uh, also, a little dated, and this what surprised me as well. John Travolta's performance to me really felt a little dated. That's it interesting. Felt, and maybe this is just because it became iconic in a sense. Right. This movie, but it almost felt like John Travolta doing an impression of John Travolta. His accent is so much bigger than I remembered it. You know, and he's doing all these things with his hands and <laughs> touching his face a lot and. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to do a bad John Travolta because that's what you're all expecting me to do. Right. I was really waiting for it. I don't know. But I'm not going to do it. I thought about it. I'm not going to do it. Maybe I'm going to. No, I'm not going to do it. But it, it was It was just, it didn't hold up as well as I expected. 
You ever seen that show, Cops? I was watching it one time, and there was this, this cop on. He was talking about, about this gunfight he had in the hallway with this, this guy, right? And he just unloaded on this guy, and nothing happened. He didn't hit nothing. Okay, it was just him and this guy. I mean, you know, it's, it's freaky, but it happens. Now, you could try to come up with a theme that connects all these stories, because we, as we said, so many of these Hyperlink movies are about something. And as I was watching it this time, I was going, what is there one here that we just don't talk about? And I thought maybe you could say that it's miscommunication because miscommunication comes up a lot in the movie, how there might be this miscommunication between Tony Rocky Horror and Marcellus Wallace over the foot massage that may or may not have occurred, how inside the apartment that Jules and Vincent go to get the briefcase, their inside man doesn't mention that there's a guy in the bathroom or how Butch doesn't really tell his girlfriend how much he needs that watch and that creates this whole problem. Or Vincent trying to have a conversation with Marvin and then he accidentally shoots his head off. You know, like there's all these examples of kind of miscommunication or missed opportunities to explain oneself. But on the other hand, you could also argue that it's the opposite, that it's actually a movie about communication because so much of the movie is just about talking and just about listening to people speak and the pleasures of listening to people have these wonderful conversations in that kind of Quentin Tarantino style. So I don't know. Is there a theme here? What do you think? Is, do, you, do you think of Pulp Fiction as a movie about blank, as about something? No, I never have, yeah. actually. And I, in some ways, I feel like it's just about the sheer joy of storytelling. Right. Because it takes so much pleasure out of its characters and out of their, you know, the crazy things that they get into. Mm. And I do think that's one of the things I've always loved about it is right. the like exuberance behind it. I remember seeing it for the first time and just... Kind of like feeling like I was vibrating walking out of the theater just because it was so – there was so much energy to it. Right. Well, like we, I think I said earlier, storytelling, not point making. And this is definitely comes down on the, the side of the former. I do think this is also an example of a hyperlink movie where you could take the stories apart and they would work just fine. It doesn't – the fact that they all fit together so beautifully – doesn't really matter ultimately that the stories themselves are strong enough to stand on their own which as we've said i think is a major test of this sort of movie so that's pulp fiction i think you've probably heard of it but if you haven't seen it in a while it's it's holding up real well it's available on amazon google play and youtube all right my next pick is not it's a smaller movie in this in this genre than i think a lot of the other ones which range can sometimes range around the globe even, uh, which is, I think, one of the things that makes it work much better, which is Lawless Heart, which is a 2001 film. It is cu- currently streaming on Netflix, directed by Neil Hunter and Tom Hunzinger. And it's a British film starring Bill Nye and Tom Hollander. The characters know each other, not necessarily that well, but they're brought together by a funeral, um, the, by the death of Stuart, who is a gay restaurant owner. Uh, they're all there mourning him, including his lover, who is played by Tom Hollander. Stuart never left a will. Uh, and so one of the major storylines is that it's up to his sister. Legally, the restaurant can went to his sister instead of his lover. And so it's kind of up to her discretion as to whether or not she wants to give it to him. And kind of she feels like she should. But then uh, his storyline, what happens in his storyline, starts to make her think that she she should hold on to it instead and then you have uh, her husband played by bill nye who meets this french woman and is really taken with her and starts to maybe consider an affair and then Stuart's best friend uh tim comes home after eight years abroad and then has his own kind of journey and what i really like about this film is that beyond the fact that it doesn't feel gimmicky in the way it's i mean like there are moments that you see in one storyline that you don't understand until we go back and start another character's storyline but that those don't feel like gimmicks as much as uh your greater understanding of a character that you only saw from one person's perspective before that in fact that in this case the multiple storylines seem like beyond just each being a story about uh, an unexpected romance that each is about having empathy for other people, like learning to understand other people and then kind of the mystery that is someone else, uh, and despite your assumptions that you may make about them. What's going on? Oh, hello, Nick. What are you doing up? Can you turn the music off, please? I was trying to go to sleep. Sorry? Yeah, well, sorry isn't good enough. But what else can I say? You can say you'll go somewhere else. 
When I said you could stay, I thought it would help because Stuart liked you, but it hasn't, and I want you to go. What, now? Yeah, that's fine by me. <laughs> Nick, it's three o'clock in the morning. I'm well aware what time it is. And has really nice performances and is also a really kind of uh, bittersweet portrait of mourning and how people mourn in very different ways that may not look understandable to you from the outside. You know, that that's the way that you learn to get through grief and to uh, to get past it. And I think that, you know, when we've talked about how a lot of these films are very bleak or about how a lot of them can kind of shortchange characters that this is one of the rare films in this category that's very generous to its characters and that is really based on its characters so that is lawless heart it is available for streaming on netflix okay that's a little more off the beaten path than my picks this week i have another fairly famous pick here but another one that i hadn't seen in a while and wanted to catch up with and that's traffic the 2000 film from steven soderbergh which is available on netflix this is one of the hyperlink movies about an issue. The issue, of course, is the war on drugs. But I think this movie gets away with it for two reasons. One, authenticity. You have these scenes where particularly Michael Douglas's character, who is sort of the president's new main point guy in the war on drugs, hobnobbing with members of Congress. And they're real members of Congress, and they're speaking – kind of inside baseball sort of stuff. They're talking like they know what they're talking about, and you get that sense of – the reality here, that there is uh, something real going on here, even if it is an approximation of the reality. And then the other thing it, it does right is similar to what you were just saying, is that it puts the emphasis on the characters, not the ideas. So, in other words, it's a human drama or multiple human dramas within this world, right? And that the, the issues and the ideas and the points all come organically out of these characters that we're following, these Mexican cops who are trying to do the right thing, they become embroiled in this very complicated conspiracy between different drug cartels. One of them is aligned with the, the government, trying to d get rid of the other one. Michael Douglas's character, his daughter who's on drugs, Catherine Zeta-Jones is this wife of this drug kingpin without realizing it. He gets arrested and put in prison, and she has to sort of deal with the fact that his enemies are coming after her and she's trying to come to grips with the fact that she doesn't really know her husband and how she deals with this situation. So all these characters are actually interesting. And I think, again, you could make a movie about one of them and it would be a good movie. And I like all of the characters, or at least I like watching them. They, some of them are kind of despicable, but they're interesting. You know, they're, they stand up on their own. They're not just props in a larger story about drugs are bad and here is why. Uh, looking back at it for the first time in a while, it's, I think it's actually more of an influential movie than I realized, particularly in the look of it. I had really forgotten the way Soderbergh, to distinguish between the different stories, has different tints. You yeah, know, the, the colors. Yeah, the Mexican scenes are all very amber, mm -hmm. and the scenes mostly with Michael Douglas's character and the daughter, they're very blue. And that helps you kind of have a shorthand of, oh, okay, here, now I'm in Ohio. Now I'm back in Mexico. It lets you know everything. That became such a thing, not just in hyperlink movies, but in television, television and mainstream Hollywood. Like, anytime you want to depict, like, elsewhere, you know, this indeterminate foreign place, throw on the amber filter, you know, and let it everything look kind of burnt out. And that, that's become such a thing now. That's such a cliche. And this is one of the first movies that did it and used it really well. You know, when Khrushchev was forced out, he sat down, he wrote two letters and gave them to his successor. He said, uh, when you get yourself into a situation you can't get out of, open the first letter and you'll be saved. And when you get yourself into another situation you can't get out of, open the second letter. Well, soon enough, this guy found himself in a tight place, so he opened the first letter, which said, blame everything on me. So he blamed the old man It worked like a charm. We got himself into a second situation he couldn't get out of, and he opened the second letter. It said, sit down, I'll write two letters. That's Traffic. It's available on Netflix. Um, so we had a list of some of the other, the other films that are out there that are hyperlink movies that we didn't really wanted to go into with in as much depth, but there are a few out there that are on streaming. Uh, Magnolia 
is one you, you can know get it on itunes yeah amazon youtube voodoo mm-hmm. um i think not one that i you know it's so acclaimed but it's not really one of my favorites it's not one of my favorite paul thomas anderson movies either yeah. and i looked a little at it this week i'm, I'm sure we're gonna get angry emails from people saying it's his best movie mm-hmm. you guys aren't getting it but i don't know it feels a little showy yeah it feels very and it's showy in a way that you're like it's a like I recognize the the skill and the talent involved there, but it's it's again bleak. You know, it's another one of these really kind of tough movies to watch. And that didn't bother me so much as just like like it 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 wears its ambition so openly in yeah. a way that I think kind of gets in the way of my like being able to take the film in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, it's certainly we, we we like filmmakers who make it look easy. Magnolia does not make it look easy. Right. It, it's it's look at how awesome this is and look at how hard it is to do this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, Syriana is on Netflix. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's extremely one about issues and extremely convoluted. Uh, I think, and you know, some great performances, still a film. I don't think I could explain to you, uh, but uh, it's one that I think there's admirable parts to definitely mm-hmm. the edge of heaven, Fatih Aiken's film mm-hmm. uh, that kind of crosses borders you know, he's a filmmaker I like a lot, though this is a film that I don't think really uh, congeals. Uh, I don't know. Is it one you've seen? I haven't seen it. Yeah. It's it's also got a lot of really interesting elements, but it does feel like it it maybe reaches further than the film can manage. Crash, Paul Haggis's. Oh, is that a hyperlink movie? Maybe. It might be. Okay. It's on Netflix. Uh, the Racism is Bad <laughs> movie of the year of all time. Uh, and in fact, um, Babel which is by Alejandro González Iñárritu, whose film, debut film we'll be talking about in a bit. But it is maybe the, the hyperlink movie that broke the camel's back in terms of just, I, I think for a lot of people being like, enough, pasta. <laughs> like, uh, you know, spanning, literally spanning the globe in terms of stories of despair and despair, miscommuni- miscommunication. Miscommunication, and, yeah. despair, yeah, but, sadness. And contrivance. Hijo. Hijo. Time for our Lister's Choice Pick. You voted for Amores Peros. Not me. Not you. (laughs) Not me specifically. (laughs) Sorry, go ahead. um, Amores Peros is not just the first film from Alejandro González Iñárritu. It also introduced the world to screenwriter and director Guillermo Arriaga. It was actually his second feature screenplay. He and Iñárritu would go on to collaborate uh, on 21 Grams, on Babel, uh, and then Arriaga would go on to write and direct The Burning Plane. Sir, you're shaking your head already. National Lampoon's The Burning Plane, wasn't it? Is that what it was? No? No, not not, not. not funny? Okay, sorry. Um, for international audiences, this was also the first time they probably saw Gael Garcia Bernal, who had acted before, but uh, who really makes his breakout here in what's one of the film's standout performances. Uh, and while this certainly wasn't the first hyperlink movie, it was one of the major ones in that kind of trend that we saw in the 90s and in the following decade. And Inuritu and Ariaga obviously became very known for these everything is interconnected movies. And in this case, beyond the glancing connections between the stories in terms of them characters seeing each other, uh, the common points are the setting of Mexico City. Uh, and there's a very bad car accident that two of the main characters are involved in and that uh, a third main character witnesses and kind of briefly involves himself in uh, you also have the common theme of dogs dogs who are frequently not treated very well uh, in the first third there's dog fighting in the second there's a dog who gets trapped in the crawl space of an apartment and in the last there's a pack that's being kept by a homeless man uh, who's been caring for them until he takes in the wrong stray uh, you also have this common theme of basically miserable love. Uh, in that first sequence, you have Octavio, played by Garcia Bernal, who's in love with his sister-in-law, Susana, and uh, tries to coax her away from an abusive relationship with his brother, Ramiro, by earning money with which they can run away. In the second, you have magazine editor Daniel, who leaves his wife to live with a model, Valeria, whose dog is the one who's lost, and uh, eventually kind of breaks apart their relationship. And in the third, you have the former revolutionary turned hitman, El Chivo, who yearns 
returns to reconnect with the daughter he abandoned as a toddler and who thinks he's dead. That uh, old story. I've heard it a thousand times. Right, so, Matt, I... I first saw this film in the theater, actually, when it came out, and I hadn't seen it since. Um, you had never seen it before. So I had really blocked out the brutality of the first story. Uh, though I do, I think it's also the best one in the film. And kind of, uh, it just over, it doesn't overwhelm the other two, but certainly is weightier than the other two, just in terms of the impact. Uh, so I wanted to know, what was your impression specifically of that first story and uh and the content which is pretty rough it is very rough it is uh there's a lot of shots of dogs being abused and like post-abuse you know like, like dead dead dogs being or really dragged away mortally wounded dogs their carcasses you know like flopping around being dragged and stuff and i actually a few minutes into it i had to stop the movie and just kind of look online and reassure myself that you know the dogs weren't hurt a lot of them were sort of like sedated to give them that unconscious look to, in order to get the quote-unquote performances out of them but it's it, it's a really hard movie to watch at times it is gruesome and i guess my feeling was even while i recognized the technique involved the skill that it takes to make a movie like this to write it to direct it i think it's very well directed i think the use of the camera is superb i think on what must have been a very small budget, I think the scope of the movie, which is something that hyperlink movies tend to do well, is really impressive. I guess I just felt all of that technique was being deployed to make me feel horrible. <laughs> and not just in that story, though, and really in all the stories. And I guess my feeling is, if, as this movie suggests, all life is kind of misery and death and pain and violence against our fellow man or our fellow brother, like literally our fellow brother, if that's what life is, and I happen to be in a moment where I'm fortunate enough that I don't feel that way, why should I watch this movie and, like, sink down into that? You know what I mean? I had this, like, kind of existential crisis of, like, if I don't agree with this movie, if I don't feel this way, why am I watching it? At a certain point, I really kind of wanted to turn the movie off. I didn't. I watched the whole thing, but I had a very strong negative reaction to this movie. Wow. that's I really didn't expect... I mean, like, I expected it to be tough on you, but I didn't expect you to say that you were close to turning it off. I mean, on the scale of, of art house cinema, I don't know that it's that much more extreme or dark than a lot of other things that are routinely out there. I've watched some really dark movies. I mean, I chuckled my way through The Human Centipede Part 2, so it's not like it's necessarily the content, although... Some of it, I mean, the, uh, for some reason, this is the lunacy and ludicrousness of the human mind. Like, I can watch horrible things done to human beings in The Human Centipede too. You beat up a dog, and I'm beside myself with grief. And that's just absurd, and it makes <laughs> no sense, and it, it shouldn't be that way. But I can't justify it. That's just the way I feel. I don't know. Is there a larger point besides the idea that all life is essentially misery and pain and violence and death and regret and treating your fellow man horribly is there one character in this movie that isn't like awful no i agree that like all of the characters i i think it is one of the things that really struck me this time watching it was the way that all of the characters even a character like octavio who's kind of uh you know presented as the romantic hero in this right. weird way the way even his like love for his sister-in-law is he kind of disturbing his, his his brother's wife right it seems and it seems as much as he seems to genuinely love her there's also there's an a rivalry. aspect of rivalry and competition he hates his brother yeah and that even that the way that household is portrayed with the mother kind of like favoring favors the older brother the other son yeah I, you know there's and kind of treating the the wife terribly as well mm -hmm. I, it's yeah it is really dark i wonder actually though how much of it is supposed to be specific like a specific portrayal of mexico city mm -hmm. and attempting to be like you remember there's one part in it where i think ramiro he and his partner are about to go rob a drugstore and he says um uh you know when I have enough money, I'm going to move away from here. It's not safe here. And then they pull on, which I think is actually something very close to something that happens in Crash, but they both pull on masks and then they go in to rob the drugstore. Yes. Uh, I do think that there are suggestions like that, that this is meant to be a particular critique of like, uh, of culture, of this culture, like the specific culture, as opposed to well humanity in general. Right. Uh, and a, like this very dark assessment of humanity yes. in general. But I do think also, I mean, as much as all portrayals of love here only cause pain, 
I think the film also suggests that like that kind of connection is is extremely important. Even, you know, in the case of the last character who weeps this message to this daughter he left behind, uh, I think that it is still the kind of major anchor in his life, you know, the kind of strongest emotional pull he has in his life. And I think that's true for Octavio as well, even though he gets he gets his heart broken, that he has a life that doesn't otherwise offer a lot of pull in any direction. Yeah. Well, but the hitman character who is kind of like a magical mystical hitman hobo guy he also assassinates people for money but he also saves these dogs and then and cares for them and has this sort of sensitive soul but then what does he get for it well he he saves this other dog and then there's negative consequences there it's just like one misery on top of misery on top of misery and again i'm just like i'm just left going well, life is horrible. Is I learned now I learned my lesson. But then he right he he saves the dog who the dog through no fault of its own has been trained sure. to be extremely violent, yes. right? So he has to deal with the consequences of other people's terrible actions. And I I mean one of the moments of grace as much as there is one in this film is when he doesn't kill the dog, you know? Right. When he says he understands like that there is that sense that like in in the case of everything being connected in this movie, is everything being connected in like in the consequences of dealing with, you know, actions that you may not even see, Mm -hmm. you know, coming back around to hurt you, that to be able to be the one who stops it in some way, you know, Mm -hmm. is there's something important to that. I felt like the only one that gave me a glimmer of, like, hope was the middle story, which was actually kind of my favorite in a way. Because it felt the least diagrammed. It felt the... Maybe it was also because it was the only one that didn't involve, like, brothers trying to kill each other, which (laughs) is... I'm not denying the fact that there are, like, brothers out there who hate each other, but it's so weird to have one movie where there's, like, two sets of homicidal brothers hating each other. That just struck me as kind of excessive, and how often does that happen? And it happens twice within, like, this very closed, enclosed space. But anyway, the middle story, which is about, as you said, this guy who leaves his wife for this model and seems to actually, like, love her and care for her, but then she's in this – she's in the accident – and what her convalescence does to their relationship. That, to me, just, it didn't feel quite so heavy-handed and over-the-top, although that does involve a dog in a crawl space for months or weeks on end. I don't know. Watching the movie in such close proximity to Pulp Fiction, you know, Pulp Fiction was a movie that great reviews, critical acclaim, awards, audiences loved it, but if there was a criticism against it was, well, it's all style, there's no substance. And watching this movie, I felt like someone looked at Pulp Fiction and said, oh, well, what that movie needed was substance. Let's make Pulp Fiction with some issues and some grit. Because it has a certain relationship to Pulp Fiction in terms of the structure, in terms of the way the stories are structured, in terms of the general like kind of underworld setting and the grittiness and the amount of violence and profanity and all that sort of thing. It felt to me like it was really made in the school of Pulp Fiction, but with this added weight to it. But... It made it too heavy. It, it like was weighted down with all this significance and symbolism of the dogs and the brothers. The brothers who are hating, who are trying to kill each other, they're literally at one point called Cain and Abel. Like the hitman character actually calls them Cain and Abel as if we couldn't quite figure that out for ourselves. I mean, this movie, I really felt like I was getting punched in the face <laughs> for two and a half hours or whatever it is, just over and over. Like bludgeoning get it through your head kind of thing and i did not enjoy it i i mean like do you feel like there was that much heavy imagery in terms i mean like the Cain and abel fine like uh yes it's late he didn't maybe need to be said though i i don't know i mean like the way that was presented it's revealed to be like another aspect of look at how kind of sick every everything is right that someone claimed that this was a a business partner who's cheating him, but actually... He's hired the magical, mysterious, hitman. mystical hobo hitman to kill his quote-unquote business partner, right. and they're revealed to have a more familial relationship. Yeah, which I think I was supposed to speak more to that general sense of, like, sickness in the society. But, I mean, like, did you feel like there was a lot of other really heavy-handed imagery in that way? Uh, just the, the, I mean, the, the constant use of the dogs, which I understand is, a, is like a theme, it's a motif, but just... When you're really shoving our faces in, like, the violence of the dogs and the, the way that they're brutalized and, and connecting that to the violence against the humans in the movie, 
that to me felt like it was really rubbing my face in it. I mean, there are yeah. a lot of shots of the dog like carcasses in the movie. You yeah. know, one or two could have sufficed, and there's a dozen. You know, so that to me did feel it was a little, a little heavy hand. I mean, I not that I relish seeing dog carcasses, but I think that <laughs> I actually good to know. Yeah. Go on the record. Well, I think that one. I think that the film knows that a lot of people react the way you do which is that this actually maybe has more impact on them than seeing a lot of actors lying around pretending to be dead yeah and that i mean the you don't see a lot of dog fighting in Mm -hmm. it you know they very consciously they the dogs will like kind of clash and then they cut to the people watching them Mm -hmm. you know uh so i think that in order to balance out the fact that they didn't actually want to have dogs fight you know right that they show the aftermath a lot more but i mean i do think this is a movie in which you have animals which are as that last scene makes clear animals which are animals you know that are basically absorbing what they're taught by their human owners uh and that i mean that's why you know they're they're the the thing on which all of these kind of like this human behavior is projected. Right. They're supposed to be companion animals, but instead they are, in one case, made to just fight to the death by people who are not that much, you know, remove themselves from doing the same and ultimately are pushed over into doing the same. So they're kind of an outlet for all of this pent up, you know, rage and violence. Right. And then in the case of the, the second story is like, uh, it becomes this, you know, it's kind of like this surrogate child, but also, uh, like an ex- like their relationship, right? Is like the the dog becomes literally their relationship put into this t- this position of uh, stress that it really can't handle. And- I'm not, de- you know, I'm not denying that. Like I said, that the movie is made with a great deal of technique and skill. You know, like I think Inyaritu is a talented director, like visually and structurally. It's like I said, I can respect the way that the movie is constructed and all the pieces coming together in a certain way, but I really. I still don't really know what I'm supposed to take out of it other than those things that I've said that I sh- I mean am I not supposed to walk away feeling miserable what if I, if not what am I supposed to feel like some slow life is miserable but there's hope because this one guy is doing he didn't he decided to stop killing people for the moment I mean, I think that you all you can do is kind of try to make things right within the scope that you're, that's made available to you, right? Right. Like within the power you have. I mean, and what if the, within the power I have, that power gives me the power to turn the movie off? What about that? I, you know, if that's how you feel, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I don't know. I'm just, I'm just being totally honest. This was yeah, the I know, very I appreciate strong, that. Very strong reaction I had. What, what did you I... think of uh, Gael Garcia Bernal? Like watching it, did you see him as you like could, a, I mean, a I could absolutely star? see why it sort of made him a star. Like it certainly is. It's a showy role, but it's well. Like he's very good. He's intense, and you, he's very believable within a framework that I did find somewhat unbelievable. Just the sheer staggering amount of coincidence and fratricide that was going on. <laughs> but yeah, oh yeah, he has he has a uh, charisma that I actually don't feel like I've seen in all that many of his movies in English. I kind of felt like. This is the guy that people keep hiring for movies that maybe I don't always see. I don't know. Do you agree? Yeah, I think, you know, I think it is a really standout role. And yeah, yeah I agree. I mean, it's uh, it's an example of what he can do so well, which is, I think, just be like very kind of charismatic in this role while at the same time being slightly worry- worrying and frightening. Uh, and uh, yeah, he's not always used to that capacity very well, uh, which, you know, it's a kind of role that shows the potential he has. So you've said you've seen the movie before once in the theater. You you liked it that time, right? What did did your view change this time? Do you, do you Would you recommend the movie? Is it a great movie? Is it a good movie? I think it's a good movie. I don't know if I, if I, if I ever thought it was a great movie, but I do think that it's... I do think that it manages to have something, uh, have a sense of something more profound without kind of having to, without having that theme be like hammered down uh, in a way that I know you disagree. But uh, I I think that it also, it is also like uh, Mexico City Noir in a way that I think is really unique and interesting and very specific. And uh, I, I enjoyed that a lot more this time around. The, uh, the kind of specificity of those details that I don't think I'd ever seen on screen before that point, and that uh, I think are really compelling. All right. Well, Amores Peros is available on Netflix. Watch instantly. 
Okay, next up is Behind the Eight Ball, in which we give you a rapid-fire countdown of three picks that are new to streaming, two that are expiring soon, and one pick chosen blindly by number from our Netflix queues. Matt, are you ready? I'm ready. Let's go. All right, three new films. First up, I've got Hot Rod from 2007. It's available on Netflix. It's a comedy sort of in the style vein of MacGruber, if you're a fan of that film. I think you'll be a fan of this one, featuring the guys from The Lonely Island from SNL. Uh, about a sort of amateur, evil, Knievelish stuntman. Very stupid, but that to me is a good thing when it comes to comedy. So that's Hot Rod, available starting on September 12th. The Liam Neeson drama from earlier this year, The Grey, advertised as a wolf-punching extravaganza. The reality <laughs> was significantly darker. Somewhat Amores Perosish, I mm. think, actually. They might make a very depressing but somewhat tonally appropriate double feature. It's about a, a a bunch of people who get stranded in the wilderness in a plane crash and have to try to survive while they're on the run from these killer wolves. That's The Grey, available on Netflix on September 12th. And finally, available on September 18th on VOD, one of my favorite movies of the year so far, The Cabin in the Woods, a brilliant dissection of horror movies that also doubles as a kind of scary but also very funny horror movie in and of itself. It's a great movie. All right, two expiring films. Okay, I've got two documentaries that are both expiring on September 15th. The first is called Nerdcore Rising. It's a documentary about the musical movement Nerdcore, which is sort of like the blend of hip-hop and nerds, basically. Very entertaining, very charming documentary. The other is called Erasing David, and this is a documentary sort of in the super-size-me kind of genre where the filmmaker makes himself the subject. In this case, uh, the director basically goes on the lam. Uh, tries to avoid detection, tries to like stay off the grid, and these private investigators try to find him to sort of prove how easily trackable we are in this world of modern surveillance and technology. Somewhat unsettling, but also it's kind of just an interesting look at those uh, issues. So those are Nerdcore Rising and Erasing David, expiring on September 15th. Okay, and one from your queue. You gave me number 22, which is the immortal classic Street Fighter, The Legend of Chun-Li. <laughs> Which uh, probably I was thinking at some point when no one was looking, I would watch and enjoy. <laughs> and unfortunately, you randomly picked it. And now I had to admit that I was at some point in the future going to watch Street Fighter colon The Legend of Chun-Li. And what a legend it will be. What a great legend. God, I'm so glad I picked that number. Oh, God. All right. Are you ready for your I am ready. version of this? Hopefully yours is as embarrassing as that. All right, here we go. Three new releases. All right. Uh, the first is Bellflower, which I also mentioned on our Twitter account. This is new to Netflix streaming. It's Evan Glodell's uh, loved by some, detested by others directorial debut. And it's I, I personally love it. It's a really interesting take on an intense relationship as uh, Apocalypse, basically. And that's available on Netflix. Next is Birth of a Nation, 1915 film, remastered version of D.W. Griffith's landmark and also extremely racist film. Uh, it's available on Hulu for free. So if you really want to dig in and watch, uh, you know, a silent, major silent film that is three hours long, that is the place that you can do it. And finally, uh, Days of Heaven, 1978 film, is now streaming on Netflix from Terrence Malick. One of my favorite films of all time, and really also one of the most beautiful films of all time, I think. And uh, they have it in HD, so you can watch it, you know, high definition, as you really should. Because it's, even if you do not like Malick, it does have amazing imagery. Okay, two expiring titles. Okay, these are both expiring on September 15th from Netflix. Uh, the first is Head On, which is actually from Fatih Aiken, who did The Edge of Heaven. We mentioned that film earlier. This is his debut film about two Germans of Turkish descent who meet cute in a psychiatric ward after they both try and commit suicide. Uh, and it is a really great punk rock uh, film about two broken people attempting to have this relationship of sorts. And the other film is The Invention of Dr. Nakamats, which is a documentary, a really cute, uh, very quirky documentary about an 80-year-old Japanese inventor who claims to be like one of the most prolific inventors uh, out there. He, is, he has over 3,000 patents for really weird, often very weird inventions. And the film is just about him. He's very adorable and has all kinds of strange ideas about how he gets his best ideas from holding his breath underwater 
And uh, he has photographed every meal he's had for 34 years. So that's The Invention of Dr. Nakamats and Head On. They're both expiring on September 15th. Okay, and one random film from your queue that's more embarrassing than Street Fighter Cole and The Legend of Chun-Li. Unfortunately for you, ah. you also picked number 22, yes. which for me is No One Knows About Persian Cats, the 2009 film directed by Vaman Kabadi, uh, the Iranian director known which for Which video such- game was that based on? <laughs> known for such films as Turtles Can Fly and A Time for Drunk and horses so yes um look at you i know it's fancy pants foreign film yeah it's about the underground rock scene in uh in iran so so there you go it's actually a good movie i've heard probably probably not as good as street fighter legend of chun li it's hard to say though who's to say who's (laughs) to say okay before we get to our listeners choice options for our next episode let's first reveal the winner of our keyword game as you recall on our last episode we brought back our old feature from our old podcast the keyword game which is a, a contest where we would give you five keywords from a movie's IMDb plot keyword page as clues. You guess what the movie is. We randomly select a winner from all the correct entries, and they win a prize. The prize was a copy of Sex, Politics, and Religion in Star Wars, an anthology edited by Douglas Brody and Leah Denica from Scarecrow Press. I have an essay in the book. That was why we were giving it away. It is available on Amazon, other fine booksellers, wherever fine books are sold. You can get your own copy. Uh, We had a copy to give away. The keywords we gave you were Valentine's Day, Trombone, Organized Crime, Millionaire, and camera focus on a female butt, Allison. What was the correct answer? Some like it hot. That's right. Some like it hot. And the explanation uh, of some like it hot from our listener, Drew Butler in New York City, says, as an expert in movies that feature a camera focusing on the female butt, uh, I mean <laughs> trombones, I knew it had to be some like it hot. And indeed it was. And indeed, it is a very famous shot of a female butt. A spectacular one. One of maybe the greatest. It's a famous shot of a famous female butt. That's exactly right, Marilyn Monroe's. Unfortunately, Drew, you were not the winner. I'm sorry to say the winner was Mike Tennyson. So congratulations to Mike. Email us, feedback at filmspottingsvu.com, and we will email you your prize, your copy of the book. And thanks to everyone for entering. We don't have any more prizes, but, you know, if somebody wants to send, you know, give away stuff on the show, we're not opposed to that. Yeah, if you we have do something, you know, you want a shout out to uh, something you've got coming you up. want to give away a book or a DVD or a Blu-ray or something, you can get in touch with us. Feedback at filmspottingsvu.com. We could occasionally do this some more. All right, are we ready for our listeners' choice options, Allison? Yes. All right, here we go. The first one is, oh, I'm excited about this. I am too. This is, uh, I think, from the same school that brought you Street Fighter the Legend of Chun-Li. <laughs> it is Pootie Tang, which is now available on Netflix, the 2001 film directed by Louis C.K., and it stars Lance Crowther and Chris Rock. It was based on a sketch, actually, from the Chris Rock show, and this character, this recurring character from the show, named Pootie Tang, played by Lance Crowther, sort of a black exploitation spoof. He speaks in his own kind of slang language that's basically unintelligible, and if Making a movie about a character who you can't understand sounds like a good idea. You probably greenlit Pootie Tang. This was a colossal flop on its initial release. It made just barely over $3 million. It lasted about a month in theaters. I think seven of those seven of those $3.3 million came from me. I think I saw it in the theater. Just could not make heads or, heads or tail of it. I didn't know what I was seeing. But as these things go, Pootie Tang kind of come on as a little bit of a cult film. And I think part of it has to do with the fact that Louis C.K. now has become kind of basically the premier comedic auteur of, oh, uh, of, of modern television with his, uh, with his TV show. So uh, have you ever seen Pootie Tang? I have not. Okay, so Allison hasn't seen it. I saw it the one time in, in 2001, and I definitely hated it. <laughs> but I'm willing to look at it with a, with a fresh pair of eyes. And I think it would be interesting to do that, to consider it within the legacy. And I think uh, as a fan of Louis, you would be able to speak to all the themes that it, it features yes. that uh, all relate. I'm sure there's I'm tons sure. of them. Lots but, of things about mortality. Yes. Um, Awkward dating. Selling out in terms yes. of stand-up comedy. Fatherhood. Yeah. Yes, all, all that sort of there. stuff. I'm sure is all involved. <laughs> so that's Pootie Tang and it is available on Netflix. Allison, what's option number two? Option number two is a new film that is uh, available on VOD. That film is Bachelorette. It's the first film from Leslie Headland, written and directed by her, and starring Kirsten Dunst, Rebel Wilson, Lizzie Kaplan, and Isla Fisher. And uh, it's about, it's like a, basically a female-led, raunchy, gross-out comedy in the style of The Hangover. It kind of, it, it tries to be 
uh, you know, a female version of The Hangover. Uh, it's got a lot of really terrible behavior by these bride- bridesmaids who uh, are at the the wedding of the friend that they never thought would be the first to get married and uh, they all resent that must go really well exactly yeah uh i you know i've actually seen this film and reviewed it for movie line you can find my review there i'm really interested to talk about it though on the scale of i think it brings up a lot of the challenges of uh why we kind of struggle with having a female equivalent to the hangover or a female equivalent in terms of our rated comedy in general uh and i think that this film you know, it brings up a lot of the kind of fears that I think that people have about likability. So uh, that's Bachelorette. It is available on VOD. Interesting. I haven't seen it yet, but you're making me want to see it with that description. So that would be a good pick as well. Our third option is available on Crackle, and it's entitled The Devil's Backbone. It's directed by Guillermo del Toro, was produced by del Toro and Pedro Almodovar, which I actually didn't know until I was looking this up that he produced it as well. It is a Spanish language horror movie set really where all Spanish language horror movies are set a creepy orphanage it's really a favorite place to set us if you're gonna during, during the war during the Spanish Civil War it's really it's covering all the bases where uh, in this orphanage there are some spooky ghostly occurrences I've seen this movie once years ago I haven't, haven't revisited it. would love to revisit it um, it was one of Guillermo del Toro's kind of like really formative. nice formative films and also really kind of nice combinations of like genre elements and kind of historical elements, mm-hmm. you know, which is something that pointed the way to some of his later work in a yeah, sense. And he's always done really well. Yeah. And it's also scary. I think it's a genuinely spooky film. That's right. Okay. So that's option three, Devil's Backbone available on Crackle. Well, which movie should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Unit? You can send your pick to feedback at filmspottingsvu.com, or you can enter in the poll on the right-hand side of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, September 17th at noon. And after that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu. And you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on next week's episode, which will be on Monday, September 24th. FilmspottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show. The Filmspotting SVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. Listen to more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.com. We'll be back in two weeks with more movie recommendations and the movie review you pick. But in the meantime, you can follow me and Allison on Twitter, Twitter.com slash MattSinger and Twitter.com slash AllisonWilmore. Or you can also follow the show at twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu, where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we also share more streaming suggestions. Allison, you've been doing – actually, you've been sharing quite a few streaming suggestions on there. So, uh, yeah, be following twitter.com slash filmspottingsvu. We also love to receive suggestions there as well. For Filmspotting SVU, I'm Matt Singer. And I'm Allison Wilmore. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 